0: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Brock, Griffin, Jonathan, Rotary Coast, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Roland, Lancelot, Bigbeard, Ash, Willie P, Shant, Brian, Schmarls, Madame Anita Sparrow, Randy Savage, Buggy the Clown. Leslie the Spice-Chonger, the Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Kilmeister, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rum Gut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I'd like to begin today with Lord Bellamont. His name by birth was Richard Coote, and I had a whole draft with tons of jokes about him. I mean, the guy's name is Dick Coote, but we're going to be referring to him mostly as Lord Bellamont. He was an Englishman. Despite the fact that he was born in Ireland, his family was one of those families of English lords that, you know, oppressed the people of Ireland. He was also a Protestant, and he was fiercely proud of his Englishness and his Protestantism. When King James II announced his intentions to convert to Catholicism, the Baron Coote, as he was known at the time, was distressed. So he left for the continent, where he fought for William the Prince of Orange in the Netherlands. That was a role he translated into a leadership position in the Glorious Revolution, and for his service he earned an earldom. The newly minted King William the Third named him the first Earl of Bellomont. Now, the Earl Bellomont was a prominent figure in London and one of the most prominent whigs. When the Tories, the opposition party, when they opposed King William's expansion of the war in 1695, they fell out of favor. King William dissolved the parliament and called for new elections, and in those new elections he supported exclusively Whig politicians. More importantly for the Earl Bellamont, King William began to replace troublesome officials all around the empire with staunch Whig supporters. Now the king had some big problems in the American colonies. First, there was the debacle surrounding the witch trials in Salem, Massachusetts. So when Governor William Phipps stepped down, King William appointed Bellamont to replace him. Before he could set sail, though, Henry Every, halfway round the globe, attacked the Mughal Pilgrim Fleet. This immediately became the biggest headache that King William had, and everyone, everyone in the world knew that Governor Benjamin Fletcher of New York was behind all of these Pirates of the Round. So the king gave New York to Bellamont as well. The king would later also drop New Hampshire on Bellamont's plate, which included what would later become Vermont. It's also worth noting that Maine was lumped in with the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, hey, Matt, isn't this a lot like that old Dominion of New England idea under Edmund Andros, that plot to consolidate New England under royal control that so infuriated the locals that there was kind of a proto-American revolution? And I would say to you that, yes, it is a lot like that, except for two things— Connecticut, and Rhode Island. They were both fiercely independent, highly Puritan colonies that were particularly distressed by being lumped in with these Anglican sympathizers in Massachusetts. So the king just kind of let them do their own thing and gave everything else to Lord Bellamont. His first major policy decision while he was still in London was a vow to end the piracy emanating from the American colonies. To this end, Lord Bellamont entertained an audience from Robert Livingston and William Kidd. He was the primary financial backer for William Kidd's expedition, producing 6,000 pounds of his own money and then getting a lot of other people on board. Prominent Whigs in the Bank of England and the Parliament and the Admiralty, he even got the King on board. And in the divisive political environment of the 1690s, this was seen as exactly what it was. It was a Whig venture. Finally, though, all his preparations were complete, and Lord Bellamont could set sail to arrive in New York City on 2nd April 1698. But by that point, everything had changed. This is episode 272. You Can't Go Home Again Lord Bellamont's first year in office went mostly okay. The war was over, so they were able to spend a lot of time building up the economy of New England. However, the news out of Bombay just continually got worse and worse as the year dragged on. And it was all about Captain Kidd. William Kidd was a menace, a scoundrel, and eventually a vile, dastardly, nefarious, vicious, contemptible pirate. He was the worst pirate ever to sail the Seven Seas if you were to listen to the dispatches from India, according, of course, to the East India Company. Now, we need to remember here that the East India Company is absolutely filled with Tories at all levels, but especially in the leadership. All those ministers and minor officials and ship captains and even admirals that found themselves out of favor back in 1695, well, they all migrated to the East India Company. And this wasn't a secret. Everybody knew that India was a Tory stronghold. So Bellamont was suspicious about all these accusations coming from such a prominent Tory. Stronghold. Kid's venture was well known. He was out there to capture real pirates like Henry Every, and for some reason he's getting lambasted by the company, accused of every vile deed in the book, and you know, to the Earl of Bellamont that seemed kind of odd. Meanwhile, Bellamont was busy arresting real criminals behind a real conspiracy of global piracy. And we're not talking about small fish here. He had Adam Baldridge upon his return to New York, clapped in irons and arrested. Benjamin Fletcher, the former governor, was not arrested exactly, but detained and sent to London for questioning. The new governor even had Frederick Phillips, one of the richest, most powerful men in the colony, in the whole of the American colonies. He had him sent to London to answer for his role in all of this. And all the while, Bellament was writing back to London defending Captain Kidd, saying, you know, look, these are the guys behind Thomas Too and Henry Every, all of those real pirates. William Kidd, my guy, is out hunting them right now. Those letters were blunt and honest. He was saying, look, this is a Tory plot to discredit me and my guy who's out there doing good work. And he did get some traction from the Whig party. They listened to him and it seemed like the winds might be shifting in his favor, but it was clearly really going to have to come down to a decision made by the king. The wife of Caesar must be above suspicion. That was a line uttered by Julius Caesar after his wife was accused of infidelity during a sacred religious ceremony. It was a scandal not so much because of the cheating, I mean, it was Rome, but because a man had sneaked into the rites of the good goddess, no men were allowed. During the trial, for the man who sneaked into the rites, Caesar didn't want to incriminate either his wife or her lover, so he said he didn't know anything. But then... He went ahead and divorced his wife. His enemies asked, you know, if you don't know anything, why are you divorcing your wife? And he said the wife of Caesar must be above suspicion. He was saying that for someone like me, and he wasn't even Julius Caesar yet, he was just a senator at the time, but he's saying that even a hint of suspicion is too much for someone like me. I've got to get her out of my life, get her out of my story. King William III funded William Kidd's expedition, and he was currently, along with a bunch of his allies among the Whigs, he was under attack from the Tories, because William Kidd was neck-deep in suspicion. And that alone had to be weighing on the king, but then, well, it wasn't a straw that broke the camel's back, it was a freight train. I mentioned last time that we would talk about Robert Culliford and what are some, frankly, amazing exploits. And I could probably devote an entire episode to his voyage after leaving St. Mary's with William Kidd's former crew, but in reality it's nothing new. There's no high drama. You know, it makes a good action scene, but that's it, really. We've heard all of this before. So here's the short version of Robert Culliford's story. He sailed for the Gulf of Aden in the Mocha frigate and waited there for some weeks. His men grew restless and hot and thirsty, but eventually the Mughal pilgrim fleet appeared, sailing south from Mocha. Cutlass Culliford waited, bided his time, until eventually the lookouts spotted a straggler. The pirates struck. They seized the ship and all of the treasures within, and it's a it's a big deal. It was, according to some sources, the single richest prize ever captured by any pirates of the round. It beat even the guns way, allegedly. But that source really only comes from the Mughal himself. That was the accusation he thundered at the East India Company, who was supposed to be protecting his ships. You know, this was the richest ship ever taken by any pirates in our seas. And he might have been telling the truth. We really don't know. There's a lot of speculation about that. But the company, the East India Company, was going to kind of cover this up. There's a reason that this greatest act of piracy that the Gulf of Aden had ever seen is almost unknown. You know, it's not a famous pirate story. Because when the company responded to the Mughal they told him, and the King of England, and really everybody in the world, they said that this was clearly the act of notorious pirate Captain William Kidd. And maybe they actually did think it was Captain Kidd. He was still in the region after all, but maybe not. Either way, telling the Mughal and the King and everyone else that it was Kidd's doing worked in their favor, you know, this puppet puppet of the Whigs was now responsible for the greatest act of piracy ever known. Eventually, they corrected their mistake. But by that point, none of it really mattered anymore. It's kind of like when the CIA will do something really awful. You know, think about the Tuskegee experiments, that kind of thing. And years later, they'll declassify the files, but only after everyone that was involved is already dead. By that point, It doesn't really matter anymore. Whether they were lying, whether this was a purposeful misdirection on the part of the company or not, the accusation that they made cemented William Kidd's fate. Remember last time when we mentioned that Captain Kidd almost ran into the fleet commanded by Commodore Thomas Warren? It was a close call for Captain Kidd because Thomas Warren had been sent to hunt him down. But the Commodore had a treasure on board. He carried an act of grace. Now, an act of grace was a pardon from the king, or more specifically, it empowered certain agents of the king to grant pardons to certain criminals. In this case, Commodore Warren was empowered to grant pardons to any pirate east of the Cape of Good Hope. It was intended to break the backs of the Pirates of the Round, and anyone who declined the pardon or went back to piracy after accepting it, they would be hunted down by Commodore Warren. But two names were excluded in the 1698 Act of Grace, Henry Every and William Kidd. The spring of 1699, and Captain Kidd's return to America. I'm not going to tell that story through William Kidd's eyes, however. Instead, we're going to look through the eyes of his wife, Sarah Bradley Kidd. I'm excited for the opportunity to do this. See, I just got a new book called The Pirate's Wife by Daphne Giancopolis. It just came out, and it's great. It's Sarah's story throughout all this drama. And here in 1699, she becomes a major player in this story, or, you know, as major a player as a respectable woman could be at the turn of the 18th century. All of her public business was done by a man, because it had to be. She couldn't go talk to the governor or a magistrate or anything like that. It would have been improper. The man who would represent Sarah Kidd in her dealings with Lord Bellamont was named James Emmett. And James Emmett was a very respectable kind of guy. He was a vestryman at Trinity Church, a non-clerical leader of the church. He'd become friendly with the Kidd family thanks to William and Sarah's many contributions in building the church, but he was actually William Kidd's lawyer, when Kidd was in London and now represented Sarah. And it was through James Emmett that correspondence began to reach Sarah Bradley Kidd from her husband. He was writing her letters. Unfortunately, none of that correspondence has survived. All we can know about the content is reflected in what Sarah Bradley asked James Emmett to discuss with Lord Bellamont. We know far more about what Captain Kidd was up to in those months than Sarah would have learned in those letters. For example, Sarah Bradley Kidd did not know that her husband was no longer in possession of the Adventure Galley. He was aboard the Adventure Prize, the former Cuida merchant, but he wasn't going to return home in that ship either. After his stopover at Anguilla, Kidd stopped at the southern coast of Santo Domingo, where he met an English smuggler out of Nassau. That smuggler traded Kidd some pigs and water for some very fine silk fabric, but then he left to go collect other smugglers who could afford to buy up Captain Kidd's entire stock. He returned with two other ships, one Dutch and one Spanish, and those three ships bought up all of Captain Kidd's stock of fabrics. They did so at pretty rock-bottom prices, but Captain Kidd didn't have a lot of options. Later that year, an astonished French priest named Pierre-Jean Baptiste Labas would write that the markets in Curaçao and St. Thomas were filled with, quote, the richest Indian silks and muslins, quote. I know it's almost certainly impossible, but I like to imagine that... In about 18 years' time, Calico Jack Rackham would be wearing some of those same fabrics that Captain Kidd sold here in 1699. But now that his cargo was all sold off, and Kidd was able to pay the men that had sailed back to America with him, he bought that English smuggler's sloop, the St. Antonio, and he burned the Quita merchant and this act put an end to Captain Kidd's command. The crew split up. They all caught rides back to their own destinations with those other ships. Captain Kidd was, well, no longer a captain. He was a passenger for his voyage home, as long as the crew did what he said. He did own the ship, and it was going to be a tricky return home. One of those letters that Captain Kidd wrote to his wife asked her to ask Emmett to ask Bellamont if it would be okay for Captain Kidd to return to New York rather than Boston, which had been the intended destination. Which, of course, was fine with Lord Bellamont. He was spending all his time in New York. Boston was kind of an afterthought for him. And so, expecting her husband to return home any day, Sarah Kidd waited. Giancopoulos writes, It had been three long years since Captain Kidd left on what was supposed to be a one-year voyage. From her parlor window, Sarah could scan the horizon for the distinctive features of her husband's missing ship. She knew the vessel like she knew her Pearl Street mansion. She saw hundreds of ships in the harbor, but not one of them was the adventure galley. She may have imagined their reunion after so much time apart, warm memories of their last summer together as a family, and their private moments aboard ship before the voyage. End quote. It's important to remember here that, well, Sarah had no idea what had happened out there, but the rumors kept filtering back that Captain Kidd was a villain and a pirate. She probably didn't believe them, but it must have made her more and more nervous. But then, one evening, as night began to fall, there was a sudden rap on Sarah's back door. She opened the door, and there was a man with a hood pulled high, hiding his face. He pushed his way inside, gave a hushed order to follow him, and headed immediately for the attic on the fourth floor. Now, Sarah recognized this man immediately. It was James Emmett, her lawyer. But he only revealed himself once they were safely away from prying eyes. And you know, a man in a dark hood entering a lady's home at such an hour without her husband present, well, that would have been scandalous at the best of times. These were absolutely not the best of times. I imagine that Sarah was frightened and confused. Why all this secrecy and sneaking about? What Emmett knew and what Sarah was about to learn was that her house was very likely under observation by the authorities. Emmett carried a letter from her husband and the news was very bad. William was anchored in Oyster Bay about five miles from home, but he informed her that he had no plans to return to Pearl Street just yet. See, after Kid bought that sloop from that smuggler, only a few men chose to sail with him, all of them from New York and returning home. Among them was a sailor who had been with him from the very beginning, a guy named Hugh Parrott. And Parrott went ashore to do a bit of reconnaissance in New York while Kid was still hiding out in Oyster Bay. And he learned a lot about just how bad the situation there was. Until this moment when Sarah read that letter she still thought that Lord Bellamont, her husband's sponsor, who had written so many letters in defense of William Kidd, she still considered him an ally. He'd been friendly and affable to James Zimmitt and amenable to all their discussions. And in a way, he kind of still was an ally. But that didn't matter anymore. Because Lord Bellamont was an agent of the king and the king now considered her husband public enemy number one. The whole empire had been mobilized to have him arrested. William Kidd left instructions for his wife to pack, as though she were packing for a long journey, and to make for Block Island, just south of Rhode Island. She was to seek out some old friends that Sarah and William knew, the Sands family there. Now, what Sarah didn't know, what really prompted William Kidd's decision to run and hide. I mean, he might have chosen to stand and fight the charges honestly. But some of his old crew had beaten him to New York. These were men who had voted to follow Robert Culliford, who had taken part in that giant act of piracy a few months earlier. When they returned to St. Mary's, they caught a ride with Giles Shelley, one of those pirate-adjacent merchant types, and they sailed back to New York much faster than Kidd did. Those pirates include three names that you need to remember, Richard Barleycorn, Abel Owens, and Joseph Palmer. As Richard Zacks says, quote, Kid could only imagine what stories they might be telling about him. Sarah packed up clothes for her and their two children, Elizabeth and Sarah, kid. Then she packed all the money that they had on hand. She had 100 pounds sterling that belonged to her husband, William, and 250 pounds of her own money, as well as an array of things like jewelry and cutlery and assorted silver plates and goblets, that kind of thing. Honestly, it wasn't a lot, especially for someone who had as much wealth as Sarah did. Most of that was tied up in land and the like. Still, it was more than most families in New York would have had close to hand. That very night, the family sneaked out, took a carriage to a nearby ship, a sloop owned by a friend of William Kidd, and they set sail for Block Island. A few days later, they arrived and were welcomed in by the Sands family. Now, Block Island was an old haven for pirates, but the Sands were a respectable sort, mostly. For now, at least, Sarah and their two children were safe. In the meanwhile, James Emmett sailed out to meet secretly with Captain Kidd. They discussed everything. William Kidd's legal position, the old pirates that were already informing against him, men like Baldridge and Benjamin Fletcher, and what they might be able to say about Captain Kidd. But the main issue for discussion, the issue that Captain Kidd needed to impart to James Emmett, the one thing that might be able to save Captain Kidd from this fate that seemed to be awaiting him, was William Kidd's treasure. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everyone who has recommended this show to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us a like. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.